Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I'm not asking for any promises, Will. You do this this once and tell me this business ain't for you, I won't press. But we'll be family soon enough if that boy gets his way. This program features the work of 2013 writer Corey Venema Weiss. Curator Stephanie Kalis sat down with her in the studio. You're writing this novel. Tell me about some of the characters and the longings that they are feeling. In the 18th century, people didn't identify as gay, per se. The genesis of the story is that Will, abandoned, meets this boy who's a transvestite prostitute. And although Will's been gay all his life, he didn't know that there was like this world of people. It's it's a big story and it has lots of characters and in a sense the underlying longing of all these people is to have a place right where they can be who they truly are and be accepted for that that's the one thing that really comes clear in any of my work that I create is this longing for who you really are in the world but I have a feeling that longing is like the breadcrumb trail that you follow through your life you don't get to see the end. You don't actually even get to know what the destination is. You just have to go little by little, and it's the longing that keeps you going. Now we'll hear a selection from Corey's live reading. This piece is an excerpt from a larger work called The Genius of Desire. It's an historical novel set in a world that's hidden from history, the nascent gay subculture of London in 1803. I use a lot of antique slang in my work, and here are two words that you need to know. Resurrectionist, it's Georgian slang for a grave robber. And Molly, in this time, Molly is a derogatory word for a man who has sex with men. Since this is an excerpt, it'll also help if you meet a couple of the characters before I start. The hero is Will Thoreau. Will Thoreau has fallen on bad times and now makes his living as a flashman, a kind of bouncer pimp in Mother Morton's Molly House, which is a kind of club-cum-brothel that um, caters to sodomites. The other character you need to meet is Jack, Will's friend and fellow Molly, who is also a resurrectionist. Will covered his mouth, his nose, with the back of his cuff, too late. Mouth, nose, and even he feared his coat were already suffused with the cloying, six-sweet stench of rot. A charnel house. He should have known. Things were bound to go bad. For all his Jack had been at such pains to make his plan sound so reasonable, so routine. To be fair, this wasn't Jack's fault. His plan, detailed, precise, had been as sound as he could make it. Still, the plan was flawed, undermined, as so many of mankind's ventures were, by the unexpected contingency. Something you did not think of, worse, a thing that never would or could have occurred to you, scuttles your scheme. As now, there was no way in hell Jack could be taken to account for an elephant, a dead, half-rotten carcass of an elephant. <laughs> Asked to supper, ostensibly to discuss Ned's growing infatuation with Will's sister, Liddy, Will knew even before they sat down that Jack had more urgent matters on his mind. He did not look well. Pasty skin, in a near-constant sweat, panting like a dog on a hot day when he wasn't coughing up his very lights. But still Jack waited till they had finished eating to broach the real business. We need an answer, Will, and it can't be no. 
We've five large and two smalls on hand, and you see how it is with me. Larges, smalls, that was resurrectionist slang. As if the dead could be sorted into but two types. As if the dead could be sorted. I'm not asking for any promises, Will. You do this this once and tell me this business ain't for you, I won't press. But we'll be family soon enough if that boy gets his way. And then it'll come down to you to look out for this lot. This is easy money, lad. And it ain't as if we're asking you to dirty. Will held up his hands. He felt sorry for Jack. He truly did. And since it was his nature to come down on the side of friendship and helping his neighbor, he would have liked, despite his own repugnance for the trade, to be of service, if only just this once. It was the money that made him bulk. Having lived for so long on so little, he nurtured a secret pride in his frugality. But now, thanks to his new status at Morton's, when windfall sums came his way with regularity, the stuff ran through his fingers like water through a sieve. And where did it all go? Sure, he still had Liddy and Jane to look after, and he always gave Mrs. H. something from his take for Anne and her boy. But the bulk of his treasure he spent on himself. And George. Tickets to the theater, the opera, late suppers at rules, drinks all around in whatever public house they happened to be getting drunk in, and clothes. George delighted in all things fashionable, but especially clothes, and he would dress them both in the latest hats, coats, shoes. Will was especially ashamed of the shoes. <laughs> he himself now owned five pair. No one needed five pair of shoes, but he could deny the boy nothing. Will knew from the start what his answer to Jack would be, and it would not be no. Will had insisted on walking, though it was already dark, in hopes the exercise would settle his nerves. And if it didn't, well, there was always the King's Arms near the corner of Leadenhall and St. Mary Axe, but that was where he encountered the crowd, spilling onto the thoroughfare, blocking traffic in both directions. It never occurred to him that the hubbub would have any bearing on his errand. It was only as he muscled his way through the crush, aiming for number 12, that he gleaned the details of the incident that had provoked so many to mob. The elephant in the tower's menagerie was dead. The keepers had sent to the famous Dr. Cooper to ask if he shouldn't like the specimen for his collection. That the good doctor had a passion for anatomy, comparative or otherwise, seemed a well-known fact amongst those assembled, and though none of them seemed to take issue with his carving up a dumb beast, a goodly number objected, and with some little fervor, to the very trade Will had come there to promote. But by then it was too late for him to escape. Some Samaritans had got it into their head that Will need, needed the doctor. They conscripted their neighbors who recruited their fellows till the whole crowd was passing him along, creating a path with their arms calling out, look out there and coming through, till they had safely delivered Will to the iron gate. There he asked for Mr. Balderson. Just as Jack had schooled him, and just as Jack had promised, the gate was open to him. He should have known there would be a catch. Sure enough, when the doctor's man appeared, a short, bald, surprisingly young man in his shirt sleeves and a soiled apron wiping his hands on a mess of a rag, he did not look happy to see Will. But before Will could even think to leave, the fellow grabbed a lantern from one of the footmen and snapped, this way. Will chased him around the corner of the stables where the yard opened up. Here finally was some decent light, leastways enough to make out the outline of the great beast. Mr. Balderson darted around the creature's head, and in his hurry to keep up, he slipped in a puddle, a dubious ooze seeping from beneath the carcass. 
Putting out his hand, he caught hold of a smooth, saber-shaped tusk. The huge head lolled unnaturally, jerking the flaccid trunk. Will backed away. His shoes! And then there was Mr. Balderson taking his arm, asking with some anxiety, Are you all right, sir? An experience very nearly as disconcerting as his encounter with the carcass. The man let go Will's arm almost as quickly as he had taken it, but now he stayed close as they picked their way between the tables, calling out potential impediments, buckets of offal, barrels full of bones. A veritable army of surgeons worked with chilling diligence at the animal's dismemberment. One fellow calmly measured out lengths of entrails. Another coiled them neatly on a tarp. One had his foot braced inside the great cavern of the belly as he hacked away at a giant rib. But for the most part, they bent themselves over tables, strewn with instruments, intent on the practice of their gruesome art. As Will and his guide passed, a stately gentleman called out, Mr. Balderson, but it was Will who bore the brunt of his attention when the anatomist finally looked up from the liverish black-red blob on his table. For his part, Will could not take his eyes off the giant heart, flayed open, pinned down, its secret structures on display. When you have finished with this business, the doctor indicated Will with a jerk of his chin, kindly see to some for refreshments for the assistants. Will turned away, but not before he heard a small squish of sound, Dr. Cooper's knife harrying the deeper mysteries of the heart. Mr. Balderson escorted Will into a small warehouse just beyond the field of operations, but with the door closed behind them, he became a different man, all tittering laughter and girlish gestures, all friendliness and unwanted familiarity. Oh, la, I swear I nearly swooned when I saw it was you. I won't say I had forgot our appointment. How could I? It's just, well, we have been about dragging that wretched creature across half the city for the better part of a day, that you should see me in such a state. Of course the man was a Molly. How had Will failed to anticipate that? Mr. Balderson, Charles, please. Had they met before, been introduced? If they had, Will had forgotten it. The fellow batted his eyes. He did, and Will did attempt to smile despite his growing misgivings. Had Jack intimated just what Will didn't like to think, but Charles interrupted his uneasy thoughts. Shall we get down to it? Down to what? <laughs> what else? How many? How much? Will was so relieved he stammered, five, f five large, two small. My, my, you boys have been busy. He set the lamp down on a small desk, unlocked its single drawer. My employer will be pleased, but not those lads, not after tonight. He counted out a sheaf of crisp Bank of England notes and held them out to Will. The usual price, he said, plus a little something for your trouble. Will took hold of the paper, but Charles did not let go. Tell Mick he must deliver them to Guy's. We'll be lucky to be finished with this mess before tomorrow evening. And tell Jack if he wants more, he can always send you back. Yeah. You can come see me anytime. He let go the money. Now I must play butler. Can you find your way? He handed Will the lantern and pointed him the door they had come in. As he walked away from Will, he had to pass between two long tables, one bare and on the other laid out under a dingy sheet, what could only be a large. Charles said, you needn't be unnerved by him, you know. No one values your work more than he does. At first, Will took him to mean the corpse, 
which made no sense. It wasn't until he was outside, making his way back across the yard, when he saw Dr. Cooper deep in some debate with one of his students, that he grasped Charles' true intent. Will touched the brim of his hat, and Dr. Cooper returned the courtesy with a small but gracious nod. <laughs> Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2013 curator of this program is Stephanie Kalis. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Mo Preventure. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Christine Brown, and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.